dive into this second part of our study here. When we begin to read about the birth of the Lord Jesus, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, we read of a series of announcements that preceded his birth. Now, you'll notice the screen and some pictures come up. That is the picture of a priest. That is the picture of a woman. That is the picture of a man sleeping at that point. Those three individuals represent Zacharias the priest, Mary the virgin, and Joseph the carpenter. These are the three individuals to whom announcements were given or announcements were made. So, we're not going to find anything else come up on the screen, so just follow me verbally here as I help you fill in this summary chart. So much more could be said about each of these points, but by way of summary. The announcement, first of all, to Zacharias, found in Luke 1, 5 through 25, who he was, a priest offering incense in the holy place of the temple a priest offering incense in the holy place of the temple. How had Zacharias gotten to do that on this occasion? Anybody know? By the casting of lots. By the casting of lots, the lot fell to him to have the privilege of going into the holy place. Now, make sure you don't confuse that. He went into the holy place, not the holy of holies. Only the high priest can go into the holy of holies, and only the high priest can go in once a year on the Day of Atonement. But Zacharias had the privilege of entering into the holy place and offering incense on the altar of incense that was before the veil or the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Listen. This was the first time and the only time that he would have that privilege. Some priests never had that privilege in life. And as Zacharias was in the holy place, he received an announcement from God via, via the angel Gabriel. Details, right-hand column, his barren wife, Elizabeth. His barren wife, Elizabeth, would bear a child to be named John, who would become the, you tell me the word, the forerunner. Excellent choice of words. The forerunner, the prodromos. The forerunner. The one who would go before the Messiah. There's so much more I would love to say about that announcement. So much more. One of the things that I think is such a significant part about that is that it seems quite apparent in reading the account carefully that Zacharias and Elizabeth, though they were barren and though they were past the age of expecting children, of any hope of having children, they had quite obviously prayed much about this. God heard their prayer. 
And it has been said, and I think correctly said by one of the authors, I think it's by, uh, by uh, Robert Duncan Culver, that the miraculous conception and birth of John the Baptist in the New Testament is only exceeded by the birth of Jesus. And this is no small miracle here. First announcement to Zacharias. Second announcement to Mary, a virgin in Nazareth. A virgin in Nazareth. Now, I think it is very important for us to write that word virgin in there, don't you? Not a young woman of marriageable age in Nazareth, but a virgin in Nazareth. You'll notice if you skip down to the bottom of the back of this page, I have written a little statement. Ex cursus, I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the virgin birth. Matter of fact, may I say, we believe in the virgin birth. Uh, that is a part of the Apostles' Creed. I don't know whether the Apostles' Creed is ever repeated here or not, but you may be familiar with the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the virgin birth. If we have time at the end of this session, I want to say a little bit about that. But what were the details, if we were to summarize them into a rather small square in this chart, the details about the announcement made to Mary? She would bear a son to be named Jesus. She is told from the very beginning that the child is to be named Jesus. That child will be called the Son of the Highest. Make no mistake about what that means, right? <laughs> the Most High God. He would sit on David's throne. He would sit on David's throne. And his kingdom would be without end. Now, there's, there's a little bit of distinction that I wish we had more time to go into here, but obviously time is limited. The response of Zacharias to that astounding announcement to him that his wife Elizabeth would bear a son, what was his response? Well, unbelief. And for that reason, he was silenced. He became mute until the baby was actually born and until the occasion came for the baby to be named. And then his vocal cords were loosed and he gave the name when the crowd was thinking that the child would be named Zacharias after his father. What was Mary's response to the astounding announcement that she was given? Behold the doule of the Lord, the maidservant of the Lord, the handmaid of the Lord. You know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if we would have been able to react in that same way of submissiveness to such an astounding announcement. I hope that maybe we would have, but Mary did. Uh, can it truly be said that Mary was highly favored of the Lord? They can, even though the Roman Catholics repeat that in their prayers. Uh, there, there's truth to that. Absolutely sure. The third announcement was to Joseph, who he was, a just but perplexed carpenter betrothed to Mary. 
Now, betrothed means something more than just engaged. This was more serious in that economy, in that culture. Betrothal was tantamount to marriage except for the physical elements that would only begin when the marriage was formalized and then could be consummated. But betrothal was so significant that it would take nothing less than a divorce to dissolve a betrothal. But Joseph, who is described in Scripture as a just man, and that's the way I meant it with the comma there, a just but perplexed carpenter, not Joseph, just a carpenter. He was a just man, that is a righteous man. Mary was with child. He was not the father of the child. Now, you know, I have to admit to you, listen, I'm in my 72nd year of life, and there are still some things that perplex me, and I will probably take that to my grave. And, and part of it is this whole matter of Joseph. But I want to take it at face value, the way Matthew records it in his gospel. Joseph was troubled by this. And Joseph had decided that the betrothal must be ended. But he had two choices of how that divorce would be carried out. One was a more private way before two or three discreetly chosen witnesses. The other was a more public way. And Joseph, once again, he is a just man. He decided to go the private route, that there would be less hurt to Mary. So what was the announcement made to him in his perplexity? The child was conceived by the Holy Spirit and was to be named Jesus. When that was revealed to Joseph in the final part of Matthew chapter 1, we read that without hesitation, Joseph took Mary. He took Mary. And he knew her not. He did not have sexual relations with her until after she had brought forth her firstborn son. But there was no hesitation on his part. No hesitation to continue in that betrothal till it became formal marriage and the child was born. Three significant announcements. The birth account itself. Now, I know we all know the answer to this, but I still think it sounds surprising when we verbalize it. The actual account of the birth of Jesus is given in only two verses of Scripture. Luke 2, verses 6 and 7. Luke 2, verses 6 and 7. And those verses are very familiar to us. Let me read them to you right now. It says, And while they were there, that is in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth, verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I love the way that one individual, I cannot for the life of me remember who it was who said this, or else I would have attributed this 
But one individual remarked on the appropriateness of that brevity, just two verses to describe this, by saying that it is as if a veil, V-E-I-L, as if a veil is drawn over that most sacred mystery. We're, let, listen, we're not given all the details of the birth process. We're not given all the details of, like some of the apocryphal gospels claim to do, that Joseph went out and looked for a midwife and, and, and what happened to the swaddling clothes, you know, where did they go and miracles were wrought by them. And we're not given all those details. We're not. It, it's like a veil is drawn around it. You know, in, in my classes, I used to love to tell the story of when my two daughters were born. Now, my daughters are both in their 40s now. My first daughter, when she was born, we were living in South Jersey. And in South Jersey, we were actually living in North Cape May, New Jersey. Uh, listen, there weren't a whole lot of hospitals in that area. So when it came time for my wife to give birth to our first child, she was given the day when the child would be born and she would be induced in the hospital in Cape May Courthouse. So do you know what I did that day? I drove Helen to the hospital, dropped her off, and went back to school to teach and waited for a phone call. That's what I did. You know what happens today when a child is born? It is videoed and everything else. And who knows, you know, where the video goes and all that. But with, with what a chaste appropriateness, it's like a veil is drawn around that. And the statement is made that Christ was born and wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. So, the humbleness of the scene is indicated by, first arrow, there being no room in the inn, no room in the inn. You know, it's probably better that there was no room in the inn. The inn meaning the, what are commonly called, when you read about the culture of that time, they were commonly referred to as caravanseries. They were like the guest houses, like the motels, hotels of that time and all. And oftentimes they were vermin-ridden. Oftentimes, there was immorality that took place in those things and robbery and all kinds of things. They were not the greatest places. They really weren't. But there was no room in the inn. The birth in a stable. The birth in a stable. Oftentimes, it is pictured in some of the artwork as being in a cave-type setting. And, and you know what? I have no problem with that because oftentimes the cave was the stable-type setting where the animals were kept. So I, I don't have a problem with that. I don't have to find wooden pillars, you know, and the, the, the lantern and, and all that stuff. And the second arrow is the baby being placed in a feeding trough. The baby being placed in a feeding trough. Simple feeding trough. Now, now let me ask you, what would have been, you know, if you think of who this was who was being born into the world, what would have been a fittingly appropriate place for that baby to be born? Uh, where? A a, a what palace? What palace, you know? Is there a palace that was appropriate enough for the, you know, <laughs> for the eternal Son of God to take on human flesh? The greatest palace that this world has to offer right now, whatever palace that may be, was not sufficient. It really wasn't. Now, as I've indicated to you already, we really don't have the time to read all the scripture references that I've listed for you, but there are two references that I most definitely want 
for us to read right now. I would like someone to volunteer to look up 2 Corinthians 8 9. Would someone like to do that? If you would just lift your hand. 2 Corinthians 8 9. Anybody? 2 Corinthians 8 9. And Philippians 2 5 through 7. Do I have another volunteer for that one? Philippians 2 5 through 7. Okay. Philippians 2 5 through 7. These are two very significant verses. First of all, 2 Corinthians 8 9. And the second passage, which is from the Apostle Paul also, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Yeah. Two things in those two verses. In that first passage, 2 Corinthians 8 9, he was rich. What does Paul say for the rest of it? Yet for our sakes he became poor. Who among us could estimate how rich he was? Who could put a dollar figure on the worth of the eternal Son of God? Yet he became poor. Who among us could estimate how poor he became in coming into this world? But do you know why he stepped down from inestimable riches to inestimable poverty so that we might become rich. And then the passage that Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, I, I, I could not have chosen you better for that. You read from, I'm guessing, was that American, New American Standard? He emptied himself. He emptied himself. Now, what did he empty himself of in coming into this world? Did he empty himself of his deity? Absolutely not. We've already made clear that one. You know, John says the word became flesh without ceasing to be, to be the word. That did not empty himself of his deity. He emptied himself of the outward manifestation of many of those things. And, but he certainly emptied himself. He humbled himself to a degree. I mean, I mean Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11 is the paramount passage to describe the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. The humiliation and exaltation of Christ. And that's the scene that we have at his birth. Well, number three, the subsequent events. There are a series of subsequent events that once again the Gospel of Luke largely focuses on, but then we have to move back to Matthew's account for the last couple of them. And to summarize these, and these things are rather familiar because of our familiarity with them from Christmas time each year. But the first of the subsequent events is the announcement to the shepherds when I would say very clearly the same night. The announcement was made to the shepherds the same night that Christ was born, and on what basis can we say that? Because the angel and the angelic hosts made it clear. Our column what? The announcement of the angel to the shepherds in the fields, unto you is born this day in the city of David. A Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Unto you is born this day. 
shepherds. Do you know that the likelihood is that those shepherds who were tending their flocks at night in Bethlehem were shepherds who were tending flocks that were destined for temple sacrifices? That's what uh, Edersheim says uh, in his life and times of Jesus the Messiah, and uh, I, I fully embrace that. And, and those, he says, Edersheim says, Alfred Edersheim says that those flocks were kept out year-round, which means that Christ could have been born in a winter month in that respect. But what I was starting to say was this. Do you know that those shepherds, because of the amount of time that they spent with the sheep and all, they were not even deemed able to enter the temple because of the amount of time that they spent with the animals. Even though those animals were destined for temple sacrifices. And yet, these individuals were the individuals chosen to receive the first announcement that the Savior was born. And they went with haste. They went with haste. No delay. The second of the subsequent events. Again, Luke's Gospel tells us about it in Luke chapter 2 and verse 21. It relates to Joseph, Mary, and Jesus and takes place on the eighth day. On the eighth day. On the eighth day, what is it? Circumcision day. Circumcision day, that's it. In accordance with the law of Moses, Jesus was circumcised, and at that time, he was named Jesus. In accordance with the law of Moses, Jesus was circumcised. Boy, I see, I didn't even put the word circumcised in that square there. That word should appear in there. But that's what was done. This is the performing of the rite that God had instructed Abraham should be performed on every male child to be the sign and the seal of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, and he was named Jesus. Now, you are aware of the fact, are you not, that Jesus wasn't the only person ever to be named Jesus. <laughs> he wasn't. Uh, Josephus, in his writings, names, uh, I think, more than ten individuals referred to as Jesus at that time. Paul even has a companion that he mentions in Colossians chapter 4 as a man named Jesus who was also called Justice. I like to call him Jesus Justice so that we don't confuse him with Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was the equivalent of the Old Testament name, Joshua, but Jesus, as it is given to Jesus of Nazareth, the child of Mary, and Joseph, and I say Joseph, not meaning Joseph the physical father, but the legal father of Jesus. That name is given in a most unique sense because he would save his people from their sins. All right, let's continue to another subsequent event, and this takes place on the 40th day. And initially, we focus on Joseph, Mary, and Jesus because on the 40th day they came to the temple and the firstborn was redeemed by the payment of five shekels. 
the firstborn was redeemed by the payment of five shekels. So that many, in writing about this, sort of use that play on words there that, the, in a sense, the Redeemer himself was redeemed. Not redeemed from sins, like we speak of being redeemed and our redemption through Christ's blood, but as the firstborn child of Mary and Joseph in accordance with what Exodus 13 and Numbers 3 required, five shekels were paid for Jesus. Why is it on the 40th day? Because it was the day when the days of Mary's purification following the birth of a son were completed. And Joseph and Mary brought a sacrifice, and their sacrifice was two turtle doves. Two turtle doves. You know what could be observed with respect to that? Their sacrifice was not the sacrifice of the wealthy. It wasn't. And when we read later on in Jesus' ministry that the birds of the air have nests and the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head, Jesus was from a poor home, a poor home. Joseph wasn't a rich carpenter. He wasn't a rich carpenter. Now, you could put for the next two things, for Simeon and Anna, you could just put a ditto in those boxes if you wished, because both of these events took place on the 40th day also on that same visit to the temple. And I think this picture, I, I, I've tried very hard to find uh, pictures that I, I think, I love artwork. I love, I love great artwork. And this picture really struck me. And no doubt in this artist's mind, this is Simeon. So that event is having been promised by the Holy Spirit that he would not die till he had seen the Lord's Christ, this devout man named Simeon took Jesus in his arms and blessed God. And then what did he say? Now, Lord, let your servant depart in peace. Now I can leave this world because I have seen. I have seen the Messiah. But there's another thing of significance that took place, and that is this this aged woman named Anna. And, and I'm just not sure exactly how old Anna was. You might say, well, isn't it pretty obvious how old she was according to the account here? I don't think it's quite so obvious. It just says in verse 36, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. Now, that's the way some translations read it. Some say that she lived as a widow for 84 years. So I'm telling you what, this lady was at least 84 or maybe over 100. Either way, either measuring rule, you guys, I would say she was a woman quite up in years, just as Lucas described her. But this aged woman who virtually lived in the temple upon seeing Jesus gave thanks to God and spread the word to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. You see, there were people who were looking expectantly for the coming of the Messiah. There were. And Anna knew where to find them. And she went and told them. Now, we flip the calendar ahead a little bit further here. And I must remark, first of all, about this, this picture. 
and there will be a number of pictures before we're finished, that are by this particular artist. This, this artist is named James Tissot, T-I-S-S-O-T, -S a French painter, I believe, who painted uh, many beautiful paintings of the nobility, the French, and I think also the British nobility, and then had some sort of a spiritual experience. I've read about it, and I'm not sure that it's a clear indication that he was uh, redeemed or born again, but some sort of a remarkable spiritual experience that from that point onward, he only painted scenes from the Bible. And he has, and I asked for Christmas one year for my children, a book, you know, one of those big art, art books of the paintings of James Tissot on the life of Christ uh, from, I think, the, the museum in Boston. And those pictures are incredible. This is the way he depicted the coming of the Magi. Now, the way he pictures it in the front of this, there are three Magi here, and does this mean I have revealed my hand that I think there were really three wise men, uh, whatever you guys think? Not really. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. When did this take place? Perhaps two years after the birth. Now, that would be the longest that it could have been that the Magi came. The Magi didn't come right after the shepherds came. And of all things, they didn't come the same time that the shepherds came, so that we can set up our manger scene with shepherds and magi all interspersed, even though I may do that myself on, <laughs> at some place in the home with a little manger scene that we bought in uh, Cape May, New Jersey, probably the first year we were married. But perhaps as much as a year or two later, having followed his star, having followed his star. And you should underscore the word his after you've written the word his in that blank. Why? Because that is emphatic in the Greek. A genitive case, for any Greek students who may be in the room, a genitive case usually follows what is called its lead noun. Genitive case normally recur, uh, occurs after the noun that it's possessing. But in this case, it precedes the word for star for emphasis. They have followed his star from the east, and they worshipped the one born king of the Jews in the city of Bethlehem. They first came to Jerusalem, and I think that would have been very natural to do, don't you? To go to the capital city of the land of Israel. But a search was made as to where the Messiah was to be born and they found in Micah, so you should write the reference, Micah 5.2, in that same block, right after you've written the word Bethlehem. Write Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2 was the prophecy in the Old Testament. And the Magi were directed to go to Bethlehem, and there they found not the infant or the newborn baby, but they found the child, and they found the child not in a stable or a manger, but in a house, but they came and brought him gifts. What gifts? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Could anybody in my illustrious class tonight spell myrrh for me? M-Y-R-R-H. Tonight's door prize <laughs> will be awarded right here, and if, when she points out the door, some of you guys will help us get it off for her. <laughs>
You guys, that is one of the most notoriously difficult words to spell, and Stephen's grinning back there because he probably knows what I'm about to say. In all the years that I taught a course on the life of Christ at the college, I used to make the statement that if everybody spells the word myrrh correctly on the next test, when it would occur, is the answer to one of the questions, I'm going to do something special for the class. I'll bring, us, I'll bring us something to eat or something. I never had that happen. Never. Matter of fact, I collected, I didn't bring it with me tonight, but I collected the variant spellings of the word myrrh. And I have a list of no less than 17 different spellings of the word myrrh. My best favorite of all of the misspellings were, was M-I-R-T-H. <laughs> the Magi brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and mirth. One of, one of them must have been a joker, is what I'm saying, in, in some college student's mind. I don't know. Oh, well. Back on the subject here, they brought gifts worthy of a king. But they brought gifts that were not only worthy of a king and probably helped Joseph and Mary in the expenses and the trips that they were about to make, like fleeing to Egypt and all that, but they were gifts also that very clearly indicated that this child was more than just a human and a king. He was uh, one to be worshipped, frankincense. Yeah. And myrrh kind of portends the fact that when Jesus dies and his body is taken down from the cross, and Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take the body and hurriedly prepare it for burial. They wrap the body in linens and what else? Myrrh and aloes. Yeah. One more thing. One more thing. What's the last thing we said on there? They offered gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. One more thing to be added to this. There are actually two things from... Matthew chapter 2, 13 through 18, and then 19 through 23. So first of all, to the left side of this picture, to the left side. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, this is sometime, you know, maybe two years later, shortly after the Magi came, because Herod was seeking to kill the child, they were warned by an angel to flee to Egypt because Herod was seeking to kill the child. Listen, Herod, Herod the Great, the founder of the Herodian dynasty, where there were four Herods, four generations of Herods ruling through virtually the whole first century AD. Herod the Great is described by Josephus with these words. Now, he's just, he uses a lot of words to describe him and tell about him. But this sentence, I think, tells it all. Josephus says, A man he was of great barbarity towards all men equally, and a slave to his passions. Uh, there was a lot of blood on Herod the Great's hands when he died. He was insanely jealous of anyone who was a threat to his rule, whether it was a wife, or a son, or a servant, or one that certain individuals referred to as one born king of the Jews. Herod was an exceptionally gifted builder, probably the greatest builder in antiquity. But he was insanely jealous. 
and Joseph and Mary are warned, Joseph is warned to take Mary and the child and to flee to Egypt. And then the last square on there, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, you could just write in that box sometime later, whoops, sometime later, in a dream, they were directed to return from Egypt and relocate in Nazareth to fulfill the prophets. Notice this word right here. The prophets ending in an S. There's not one single verse that indicates this, but Matthew's gospel being the fulfillment of prophecy gospel, it's oftentimes called because of the numerous occasions when Matthew says that this happened, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. At this point, he says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. There are a number of scripture references that probably should all be taken together, not just one like from Isaiah 11.1 1 or whatever. Nazareth will become his home. Now, there's just one other thing that I chose to include in, in this second section of our survey of the life of Christ, and that is a snapshot of the early years. Dr. Luke, toward the very end of chapter 2, verse 40, first of all, he says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. But then... In the last verse of this chapter, I'm reading just 52, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Maybe we can make just a couple observations here. Jesus grew, first of all, in wisdom, that is intellectually. Did you ever stop to think about that? Jesus, who existed from all of eternity. We're told he grew in wisdom. Well, Dr. Hendrickson stated it this way, and all we have to do is add one word to it. You can probably guess what that word might be. Dr. Hendrickson said, the present passage shows very clearly that according to his human nature, there were certain things which the child Jesus did not know from the start. He had to learn them. How many of us have had to go to school? All of us have, unless you haven't started school yet. Did Jesus go to synagogue school in Nazareth? I think it's likely that he did. I think it's likely that he did. Luke tells us he grew in wisdom. Second of all, well, that is according to his human nature. Second of all, he grew in stature, that is physically. This is the easiest one to grasp because all of us can picture in our minds the baby Lord Jesus in his mother's arms and the full-grown adult Jesus ministering. So he grew in stature. He needed physical strength. That statement more fully in your notes says he continued to grow and become strong. Physical strength was going to be required for him to wield the tools of a carpenter, see, he would, be, he would be trained in a trade by his father, which was absolutely necessary for a father to convey to a son in that Jewish economy, in that Jewish culture. And not only that, but to carry on the rigors of his ministry. 
I, I might just ask the question, have any of you ever had the opportunity to visit the Holy Land? Okay, a few of you have visited the Holy Land. That's not a flat land, is it? Not a flat land by any stretch. What if we went as visitors to the Holy Land and after arriving in the Holy Land, we didn't have tour buses to take us around, but we had to walk the whole trip. Well, first of all, we couldn't make our trip in a week or two. We couldn't. But if we had to walk, do all that walking, we would be worn out very quickly. Just because in our, you know, do, how many days do we walk 15 miles a day? Maybe never. Maybe never. And it wasn't 15 days of flat land. So there were rigors involved in the carrying on of the ministry. But moving to the third thing, he grew in favor with God, that is spiritually. Now, if, if our mind is really stretched to think of how he grew in wisdom, how about this one? He grew in favor with God, says Dr. Luke. Now, was Dr. Luke mistaken here? Of course he wasn't. Remember, we've said from the very beginning, the scriptures are our sole authority for this. He grew in favor with God. Jesus continued to nurture a close relationship with the one that he had enjoyed perfect fellowship with from eternity. How during the days of his flesh did he do this? I think there are two things that are very significant here. First of all, by regularly, intimately fellowshipping with him. Do we have examples in the Gospels of Jesus fellowshipping with God? Or, as the scripture reference Mark 1.35 indicates, Jesus arising a great while before day and going out into a, a deserted place all alone where he wouldn't be disturbed as if he would be disturbed by the sluggard disciples who were still sleeping, but he went out to be all alone to commune with God. And, and that verse is not an isolated verse in Mark chapter 1 and verse 35 either. By regularly, intimately fellowshipping with him. And second of all, by constantly, by constantly submitting to his will. Constantly submitting to his will. In that passage in Philippians chapter 2 that was read to us, we get the impression that Jesus came into this world he became a servant, one whose will was swallowed up in the will of another. And whose will was that? His will was swallowed up in the will of God. Jesus said to the disciples when he was in Samaria dealing with the Samaritan woman at the well, and his disciples came to him from the city of Samaria trying to scare up some kosher food and very concerned that Jesus hadn't eaten anything. Uh, Jesus said, my meat... It's to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Yeah. And those two things that we observe here are, are things that we need to constantly remind ourselves of as we seek to maintain fellowship with God, intimate fellowship with God, intimate fellowship with God which will continue to shape us into individuals that uh, are very obviously going to belong to him. Everybody will see it. But there's a third thing, a fourth thing, excuse me, 
Luke tells us he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That is, he grew socially. People of every class were drawn to him. This quotation from Robert Duncan Culver's book on the life of Christ, which I loved very, very much and which helped me in, in framing the whole course that I taught at the college. Culver said this, during his remarkable brief ministry, Jesus attracted people of every social class. Children flocked to him. Young men were captivated. Many women sought his company in groups and in private. Roman army officers, Jewish tax farmers for the emperor, lay leaders of local synagogues, learned scribes and Pharisees, both believing and unbelieving, cynical Sadducees, aloof Herodians, even a Jewish king and a Roman procurator found in him much to attract and interest, if not always to admire. He grew in favor with man. What a, what a great summary this is by Dr. Luke of Jesus in his early years and the majority of the years of Jesus' life are sometimes referred to as the silent years because we know virtually nothing about what happened in the years from the time they returned from Egypt and located in Nazareth until the time that Jesus appears before John for baptism. Only one event described when Jesus was 12. But other than that, numerically, the largest chunk of years of his life were those years that were spent in growing up that Luke summarizes, he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. It's a great snapshot of what I think we ought to desire and what we ought to desire of our children in their well-rounded development, their well-rounded spiritual development. Now, we really need to quit, but I want to say just a word about what I put at the bottom of the page here. And that is just a simple statement. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the virgin birth. The virgin birth of Christ has been attacked by opponents of Christ and opponents of the gospel from the time that Jesus lived on earth up until our own time. In John 8.41, the religious leaders that Jesus is talking to say, we were not born of fornication, and the implication is, like you were, we know the story of you. Also, some liberal theologians have suggested that Jesus was the product of the rape of Mary by a Roman soldier named Tiberius Julius Abdus Pantera. Similarly, a Jewish document from the Middle Ages named the Toledot Yeshu says that Jesus was the illegitimate son of one Joseph ben Pantera. More recently, John Shelby Spong, we've ever heard of his name before or not, the retired Episcopal Bishop of Newark, New Jersey, said, quote, In time, the virgin birth account will join Adam and Eve and the story of the cosmic ascension as clearly recognized mythological elements in our faith tradition whose purpose was not to describe a literal event, but to capture the transcendent dimensions of God in the earthbound words and concepts of first century human beings. I have one word for that, heresy, heresy. 
The doctrine of the virgin birth has long been attacked, but the doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ is defensible. It is. We, we, we need not fear that all the facts are on the side of the people who reject the virgin birth. I mean, virgin births never happen. Linguistically, the word doesn't refer to this and all those kind of things. No, no. Linguistically, in response to those who say that the word Alma, the Hebrew word, should be translated young woman instead of virgin, note the following. The word Alma, wherever it occurs in the Old Testament, indicates those of the female sex who had not yet entered into the relationships commonly associated with marriage. Listen, scholars can defend the virgin birth. Scholars who love this book, the book that we recognize from the very start of our study, is the focus of our attention. The doctrine of the virgin birth is essential. Essential. B.B. Warfield put it this way, the supernatural Christ and the supernatural salvation carry with them by an inevitable consequence the supernatural birth. Why do we believe in the virgin birth? Simply because it is the clear teaching of Scripture. Those who reject the virgin birth reject the testimony of Scripture and invariably also reject the deity of Christ, the miracles that he did, and of course that he was raised from the dead. Listen, I believe in the virgin birth. How strongly do I believe in the virgin birth? I believe in the virgin birth strongly enough to go to the stake for it. That's the way I would put it. And I trust that I would do that if the occasion would arise. This is an essential. It's, it's not a side frilly little add-on, you know, to make our doctrine a little bit more impressive. This is essential truth. Uh, thank you for coming tonight. I think it's time to boogie out tonight, probably, <laughs> for us. And I hope I see some of you tomorrow. I really hope so. I'll be back tomorrow, for sure. If I'm not back here tomorrow, call the police, you guys. Somebody's got me, and they're holding me, okay? And I'll try to slip a cell phone call in when I can, okay? So, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll close tonight, and I'll be glad to talk to any of you afterwards. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Your word is truth, Lord. Your word is our delight. Thank you for the opportunity that you've given us tonight to take two looks into our summary survey of the life of Christ. And I pray that you would bless us as we go to our homes tonight. Take us there safely. Give us a good night's rest. I pray especially for our pastor, Lord, that you would bless him and restore his strength. And Father, we look forward to being able to study more, survey more together Bless us in our lives, Lord, as we seek to live for you. I pray that some of the things that we have seen tonight have challenged us, if not with things new, certainly reminding us with things that are important for us to know and to do if we truly love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.